Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation and the Lewis Lerman Auditorium. Uh, first, uh, I was told by events that I need to do the disclaimer, otherwise they're going to complain with me. Uh, so please turn off all your cell phones and make sure it doesn't make a noise. And if it does, make sure it's relevant to what's being discussed. So in this case, it's going to be really challenging. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to come over to the Heritage Foundation this Monday to discuss Dr. Sarah Krebs' new book, Taxing Wars which is here, and I was telling a few people that this is my version and you cannot steal it because it's clearly mine because it has a bunch of notes in it, not that they will be much valuable to you. And thank you so much, Dr. Krebs, for making your way south here to talk to us. And Dr. Krebs is a professor of government and adjunct professor of Cornell, no longer adjunct, right? Yeah, oh, okay. Sorry about that. He's a professor at Cornell. Uh, yeah, and she's the author of four books, and the most recent one, Texting Wars, which we're going to be discussing here. Uh, her other books, two were on drones. One is named Drones, What Everyone Needs to Know, and Drone, Welf and, and drone Warfare. Uh, so if you have questions about drones afterwards, save them for, for the very end. And her first book was called Coalitions of Convenience, United States Military Interventions After the Cold War, where she analyzed military interventions carried out over the last decade. She is wildly published in both academic journals and media outlets, and Google will help you a lot to guide her through her work. She also has a, a good website that will inform you of anything that you need on that. Dr. Kerbs is a uh, Air Force veteran and has held fellowships at, at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, uh, University of Virginia Miller Center for Public Affairs, at the Council and at the Council for Relations, where she is still a life member. She has a BA from Harvard, uh, MSc from Oxford, and PhD from Georgetown. And she will speak about her book for 15 to 20 minutes, and she has slides as well that you all can follow. Then I'll ask her a few questions. And while I ask her questions, please think of your own questions to ask her, and I'll open up for audience. Without further ado, Dr. Sarah Krebs. Thank you. It is great to be here. I grew up in the D.C. area, so, uh, and, and I'm not just saying this, full transparency. Heritage is the first think tank I was familiar with because it was the 80s. Um, and my dad is, was a hardcore uh, Republican, so he's like, the one thing tank you need to know about is heritage, full stop. So here I am all these years later, so it's you great to be here. I am. So, um, so I wanted to just say, give a few framing remarks about the book. Um, some of you have read it maybe less thoroughly than Fred. I was a little bit daunted by all of the notes that he's taken on the book. Um, so I want to say a few things about kind of how I came about this topic and, um, and sort of what the contents and argument are. So um, it actually came about because I was uh, corresponding with a colleague who works on Latin America, and he was talking about the Colombian uh, war with the FARC and the security tax that they had levied to finance this war. And I kind of, you know, as a, a scholar of American American military and defense policy sort of scratched my head, like, oh, security tax to pay for war. That's interesting. We don't really have those uh, where I come from. And, um, and so I started looking at this question of sort of how do we pay for wars, and it was interesting to me because it used to be that the United States would finance its wars through war taxes, and that really has kind of gone by the wayside. And so I wanted to 
really unpack this. Like, what are these trends? Why have we shifted the way we do things? And what are the implications for it? Uh, and so that's what I'm going to talk about uh, in the next 15 or so minutes, uh, give or take. Uh, talk a little bit about kind of how these, what wars uh, that we're talking about and why it matters how we pay for them. Uh, kind of the theoretical arguments about how, how you could finance wars, uh, if, uh, if not through taxes, uh, what are the alternatives? The trends, the historical trends that I looked at quite closely in my book, uh, and thinking about those, these implications for how, we, how democracies fight wars. And then kind of, how, what, do we, what do we do about it? What is the policy challenge here? And I say challenge for good reason. I think it really is a challenge. Uh, so what are we looking at here? Uh, we're looking at fairly costly wars. Uh, so when you, you can see, for, I, I know a lot of you kind of look at this, the, these kinds of costs very carefully. Um, and if you do, you know that it's very difficult to parse what the actual costs are of these wars. But they sort of range in the roughly $2 trillion to $6 trillion, which is, starts to sound like real money. Um, and when you kind of rank these recent wars, uh, they are the most expensive after World War II. And so it's a non-trivial amount of cost here that we're talking about. And so the question is kind of how, how uh, could we finance these and what, it, you know, what is contributing to these? And so the big ones, you know, even if it's difficult to parse, uh, the big drivers of these costs, of course, have been the Afghanistan War and the Iraq War. Um, and so these are, again, estimates, but they sort of have contributed to this, this ballpark of cost. Uh, so how does the US pay for wars? Well, there have been a number of ways over the years that are uh, more complicated than the, these two main ways, the borrowing and the taxation uh, options, like impressment, where you could, this is a sort of an old school way, you could just sort of basically steal someone else's troops and force them to work for you. We don't really do much of that anymore. Uh, but what we have done, what we do exclusively now is we borrow, but that's to be contrasted with taxation. And this, the, the way in which these uh, two forms of what finance uh, take place has important implications, not just politically, socially, economically, all of these. So I want to pause a little bit and unpack that a little bit. So borrowing, kind of the upshot of all this is that borrowing is, you might think, well, we have to legislation to raise the debt ceiling, that's really complicated, Bar but still, t side by side with, with taxing, uh, borrowing is the more straightforward measure. So generally, you can just kind of continue to uh, borrow and accrue debt, um, and there tends to be less sort of political debate to that. So the uh, um, one way to do this is, you know, where one cost of this is these intergenerational inequities. And I don't want to get much into the sort of social kind of part of this and focus, I can talk about that more in the Q&A, but, uh, but to focus more on the political side of this and, the, and the, uh, the reason why there have been these shifts. And so one of the very attractive things, if you're a, po a politician, is that uh, this is a relatively straightforward thing to do, and you don't have to pay much electoral cost for this. Um, this is much easier, under, more easily understood if you contrast it with taxation. Uh, and so what are the advantages of taxation? Well, so some people, uh, John Maynard Keynes in the uh, Second World War when he was advising the British government said, had advised this because this was a way to sort of uh, uh, create better sort of generation, intergenerational equities but he was very much interested in the sort of progressive taxation issue. So that was a way to uh, spread the, the cost of a war uh, based on the ability of individuals within society to pay. Now, given the recognition of where I am at Heritage, I would also just say that Adam Smith, back in 1776, was a big proponent of taxes for wars because it gave, this is the, the key accountability thing, so what he knew and uh, as, as to why this was a, uh, an attractive way to do it is that if you tax people, they would be very aware of the conduct of that conflict. And that, this was kind of how I came about this topic is that, you know, if you think about accountability linkages, you think about what, what feels pain to you, it feels pain when you're having to pay taxes. And so um, there's this really interesting quote from the World War I taxation where uh, the Washington Post said that 
every morning when you wake up, from the second you wake up to the second you go to sleep at night, you're aware every basically everything they did during uh, that you would do in a course of that day was uh, taxed in a way that reminded you of this ongoing war. And so one sort of theoretical virtue of taxes is, in fact, their un unpopularity. So the fact that it, this was Adam Smith saying that the fact that these are unpopular meant that leaders would have would be held accountable when they initiated these taxes. Uh, unfortunately, though, you can see how this kind of creates a pernicious cycle. I want to, though, before I get to that, draw this accountability linkage. So this is, again, you know, you're getting across kind of this uh, intellectual spectrum. So this is Immanuel Kant. What made democracies different was that they would pass along these costs to the public in blood and treasure. And since their consent was required, uh, leaders would be more conscious of the kinds of wars they were initiating and conducting because they would have this accountability with the public. Uh, and so, of course, the inverse of this is true. If, if the public is not paying, bearing these costs, sort of what incentive do they have anymore to put pressure on leaders to keep wars short and low cost? Uh, and so that's kind of the fundamental accountability linkage uh, insofar as uh, the public is bearing these costs, their consent is required for war, that leaders would therefore be more accountable. And what was, uh, what's interesting about this, I think from, you don't need the, you're like getting a headache right here looking at this, but what I wanted to just show you is this um, column here, the war tax column. What I want to show you is that Really, until recently, uh, wars have had war taxes. And so that's the column uh, second from the right, which is war tax years. And you can see that there was an isolated case, the Mexican-American War, relatively brief, that did not have war costs. But every other war has had war taxes. And so this is sort of operating as exa exactly as uh, Kant would have expected, which is that this is the democratic foundation of conflict. The public is getting the costs passed along to it. Uh, it's kind of making these cost-benefit calculations. Is this war important? If so, uh, I'm willing to pay for it. Um, if not, I'm going to put pressure on leaders to bring these wars uh, to a close. But as you can see, more recently, we have not had a war tax since the Vietnam War. Um, and so I was kind of curious why this was going on and what, has, what the experience more recently has been. So every so often uh, in the recent wars that I had kind of kicked this off with, there have been initiatives to redress that. And so this was just one example from 2009. It was the Share the Sacrifice Act. And it's basically getting at this accountability issue. The problem in this country, you can read for yourselves, but that basically people are detached from these wars. They have no connection with them. And so this member of Congress was trying to uh, create an awareness of these conflicts. And he was doing that in part by uh, trying to initiate a war tax. Well, you, if you were around this time, uh, or maybe you were uh, aware or not aware of it, because both parties basically tried to brush this under the rug as quickly as possible not just, I mean, on both sides. I mean, there's a bipartisan antipathy toward this. So the Republican side, this, these are just representative comments. You know, Americans are already being taxed to death. And this, this line I liked from the Washington Post, C.J. Dion, Democrats ran away from this idea as fast as you can say the words Republican majority. This is just kind of a political loser. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, who was uh, at the, in 2007 when this member of Congress had initiated his uh, first set of war tax proposals, said, just to be clear, this is not a democratic proposal, very much distancing herself from this uh, idea. So the question is why we've seen this shift. And I want to do, do a deep dive into this. You can read it in the book, but I just kind of want to trace this out a little bit. Uh, and I think there are at least two sets of reasons for this. Uh, and one of them, uh, and this was really the main reason for my slides, is because I have some, some uh, graphs to show. Uh, if, so when you look at what has shifted, and what I mean by state-society relations is, is sort of fiscal policies have changed, fiscal and social policies. And, uh, and I'll illustrate uh, with these two uh, sets of, of graphs. So every war, basically each one of these 
uh, spikes before about um, the uh, before World War II. Each of the major spikes corresponds to a major war. So you have every time there's a major war, the U.S. would initiate a war tax. So what that does is that's obviously increasing your tax-to-GDP ratio. Uh, what you can see very clearly after World War II is that those levels don't go back down. So some political economists refer to that as the ratchet effect for this particular case. And so taxes have remained uh, relative, tax revenues have remained relatively high. Um, meanwhile, or the, one of the reasons for that uh, is, is this, and I actually have seen this in a heritage uh, document. Um, this is more my clever language, the waning of the warfare state and the waxing of the welfare state. And so that basically means, I think this, is, this sort of runs contrary to, I think, a conventional wisdom, which is always, well, defense budgets are huge and, you know, it's crowding out social spending. And when you look at this, this is actually not what's happening. Uh, and so you can see that entitlement programs are actually having that opposite effect. So they're crowding, I don't know if it's crowding out defense, but defense is at a relative, I mean, it's at a historic low as a percentage of uh, the federal budget. And so what these two, this sort of state-society relations, the, the argument here is that, you know, as you see here, tax, re tax rates are relatively high. This is a, basically a proxy for your tax, for tax levels. They never go back down. So you have high ish peacetime levels relative to historic rates. Um, and you have basically sort of a bipartisan commitment to these social programs that arose in the 30s and 40s. So what you get is a bipartisan antipathy toward higher taxes, a bipartisan antipathy toward cutting social spending. And so you end up, what I argue is a sort of ceiling effect, that now it's really difficult to raise taxes for issue-specific reasons. And so that means, and this is something that comes through very much in the research I've done, is that when you ask people, oh, would you support a war tax? That's double taxation. You know, what's next? An air tax. So people that, that now the norm on this is so different because there's a sense that they don't want the a la carte taxation. They've given their tax money and that should fund everything, including the social, these, the sort of the largesse of the social programs. Uh, and so that's a, a, a key thing that has changed is that commitment to the social programs, but also sort of concurrent with that is the fact that tax increases now have remained unpopular. So this is actually, I don't know if it's okay to say, this is AEI data on um, what people think about taxation. So I, this is probably not surprising um, that uh, most people think their taxes are too high, very uh, comparatively few, a minority about right. And only 2%, contrary to what I think we're seeing today with this sense that like, well, everyone supports a 70% tax rate. That's not what the evidence generally has, has historically suggested. Uh, research on the political economy of taxation shows that there is kind of a punitive element to the leaders who try to increase taxes before an election, also fairly intuitive. So you can see why now in this kind of post-war, post-World War II climate, why you would get some aversion to taxes as the way to finance wars. But there's a, a, a maybe a less uh, or more intuitive uh, second reason, which is the change in the, you know, military people will say, well, the nature of war doesn't change. Posits would tell us that the nature of war doesn't change. Okay, the character of war, which is that uh, after World War II, uh, you, you know, with the advent of nuclear weapons, uh, major wars, and people have different arguments. Steven Pinker would say that major war is no longer a thing for other reasons. I think nuclear weapons have had, uh, have the, had the effect of putting a lid on escalation. And so I think what you have is you don't have a direct confrontation because both sides know that the stakes are too high. So you end up with a low, with these lower intensity conflicts. Um, and this is Mario Cuomo from 1995. I mean, it's a much longer quote than this that I start out my uh, concluding chapter with. And I think there's there's a lot about this that I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, the World World War II, you had you know Mussolini, you have Hitler, and then you end, you know the illustrative case, and this is sort of proximate to when he was talking about this in '95, is the Persian Gulf War, and he says, you know, everyone thinks you, we get it. And that's like, is it, is it is it oil? Is it the who am I fighting for? Who's the Emir anyway? Where is my son going? And so no one. These wars are much sort of more. They're less existential. They're harder to for Americans to kind of wrap their heads around. And 
So the unintended consequence of this is, um, uh, I don't know if any of you follow Steve Walton on Twitter, but um, you know, he, it's 2014 and, and I still kind of like this. U.S. grant strategy, uh, we, there's just the stakes aren't that high and it's not worth much sacrifice in lives and treasure. And so I think what we see now is that kind of this pernicious cycle of the wars seem like they're not worth the stakes. The political leaders sort of lack the courage to solicit sacrifice. Um, and my own research has shown that it, for sort of conditional on how wars are funded, if you uh, propose a war tax, uh, support declines by between um, 15 and 20 percent. So leaders, I think, are savvy on this, and they don't want to incur political risk by introducing war taxes. Um, and so you see this historically, and I think really the last major war, or the, so, so Vietnam really is this turning point where you have kind of this illustration of this gray zone, is it war, is it peace? We're gonna kind of shroud the cost of war. Um, but Johnson here is, is, is quite clear about uh, what he's trying to do here by avoiding a war tax. And he says, I don't know much about economics, which is true, uh, but I do know Congress and I can get the Great Society through right now. But if I talk about the cost of the war, the Great Society won't go through. And again, it's this sort of guns and butter thing um, where he turns this into a not a guns versus butter, but let's let's just have it all, the whole inshallah, the guns and the butter, but let's just not talk about it. And so uh, shroud the cost of the war by not having the war tax, and there's a lot more sort of uh, verbiage on the part of LBJ that's tying this debate that would inevitably take place about a war tax to his uh, aversion to actually having a real democratic debate about the war. So the last war tax is 1968. Um, and I think the lessons were really internalized since then. Um, but I also think that we see this in these recent wars. You know, Afghanistan started in one, in one, in one way that I think everyone could get behind. We're now in the 18th year of this war. And, and, and so I just put up a couple of these strategic objectives uh, of the war. And so this is McChrystal, which just, um, I, I thought, uh, really, no pun intended, crystallized the difficulty here, which is, you know, he, and he's asking his aides, are we, do you think we can get to Bangladesh level corruption? And, and this is like a major strategic objective of the Afghanistan war. And so, uh, Afghan uh, so, so Bangladesh, I don't think, is known for its low levels of corruption. It's, uh, I was looking, and it's about 168th uh, on the sort of transparency and corruption indicators. So it's not really high. So if you, if you say to the American public, we want you to commit some of your resources, and if you do, we might get in Afghanistan down to Bangladesh-level corruption. That's not really a, a great pitch for fiscal sacrifice. Uh, one of the others uh, that I thought was really interesting is, uh, and this is an indicator of success in Afghanistan, is how many steps does it take to get a driver's license in Afghanistan? And you might think, like, why does that matter? Well, it turns out every one of those steps is an opportunity for graft. And corruption then is a proxy for sort of being able to create stable conditions on the ground in Afghanistan. Again, though, this starts to sound like foreign aid, and uh, most Americans think we spend too much on foreign aid, and you're getting, again, this sort of blurring of lines between what's war, what's peace, why should we care, why should this count for anything? Um, and so what we get then is, is, again, the political elites that are saying, let's just not talk about it, like nothing to see here. Um, and so I think there are real policy in, in, in implications of this. So if we come back to Kant and, uh, the, and sort of what makes democratic conduct different, from non-democracies, uh, and the reason why wars used to be sort of shorter and more accountable is that you had skin in the game. So here, uh, this is duration in months of U.S. of major U.S. wars, um, and you know it's it's kind of eye-opening the degree to which this has corresponded uh, to the uh, shift in the way we finance the wars and what we ask in terms of sort of sacrifice from the public, and what I would argue is, again, this sort of unraveling of the accountability that leads to kind of these wars that continue without end. Um, and again, you know, all these things are multi-causal, but you, you know, it's also not surprising that if you're not raising taxes, <laughs> your debt rates are going up as well. So I think that there are real implications in terms of not just democratic accountability, but sort of fiscal responsibility as well.
Um, so I think this is, this is, again, a real policy challenge because the whole reason why leaders are averse to this in the first place is why it would make it difficult to engage in the kind of thing that would give Americans kind of skin in the game. So in the Iraq war, when, uh, the Marine Commandant, uh, this, uh, you know, Bob Woodward's accounting, so for what it's worth, but he had proposed a five cent gas tax and he had said that, you know, the problem with these wars is that Americans are just on the sidelines. They're just spectators. They have no skin in the game. And he proposed this five cent gas tax would give Americans sort of a reason to care. Um, he said that uh, Americans continue to be spectators unwilling to change their habits. Uh, but I think what we see is that politicians are unwilling to change their habits as well. And I think there are reasons why that is. Uh, but I think until they're willing to change that, we're going to continue kind of with the, the past, the recent past being prologue of sort of these unaccountable uh, wars and the rising debt levels. Uh, so I think on that really optimistic note, I would uh, <laughs> look forward to your comments and questions from the audience. Thank you so much. Um, and before I start my questions, I just wanted to say that I truly enjoyed reading your book. That's why there are so many notes on it. <laughs> and it opened my eyes to a different academic literature that I didn't know, like on the relationship with that and the ability to conduct war and all those questions that, that I thought was fascinating. So thank you for your work on that. Uh, my main takeaway from the book is the impossible trinity that you describe in which the defense budget operates. Uh, the three reinforcing factors for the few of you that have not read the book uh, is the need for extra defense resources, the unwillingness to raise taxes due to the ceiling effect that you described on your presentation, and the public's desire to maintain current uh, welfare programs. If you have those three components together, it, get, it, it is really challenging for any politician to make an argument that you need more resources for defense, e either to, to face China or to, to continue doubling down in Afghanistan, whatever purpose it might be it becomes really challenged to make that, uh, to, to be, to, to have a, a case that is compelling enough and well received by the public. Can you talk to the audience about how those three factors work together and what is the, the how the impossible trinity factors in? Thank you. Uh, so, I'm glad you were so attentive on this. I was taking notes on my, uh, apparently, what's in my book. Um, but, I, but as I was doing that, my pen ran out of ink. So um, the, so the need for more defense, thank you, the need for more defense resources, sustaining the current welfare programs, and the debt. And you, no, unwillingness to raise taxes. Unwillingness. Yeah, yeah, well, so right. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, the high, high tax rates. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think, and it's sort of what I was trying to get at with this, idea of the state-society relations, which is that, uh, and, and this sort of surprised me a little bit as someone that uh, thinks of my, you know, I think of myself as a, a fiscal uh, conservative and, you know, looking at these, uh, these programs over the 30s and 40s and looking at sort of the political elites that one would have expected to sort of uh, push back what was interesting to me is the the rapidity with which that political opposition atrophied. And I think it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, a little bit what we saw with the Affordable Care Act and the sort of post-2016, you know, a lot you know, the members of Congress and the president that campaign on repealing Obamacare. And it turns out that a lot of their constituents, once they had it, don't want to give that up. And I think that's a lot of the what you see in the in public opinion data is that Americans will say we want lower taxes and more services. That's just untenable. Like you cannot do that in a way that is fiscally responsible. Something has to give, and and it, and so once you start to ask questions in a way that force trade offs, people get really uncomfortable. And I think again, these political elites do as well. Uh, and so the easiest thing, and I think this isn't something we've talked about yet, but I do think this is a consideration, is that the U.S. kind of has this luxury in a way because it is the world's reserve currency, the dollar has been strong, and so it can kind of get away with the debt increasing. 
Um, and so that's kind of the thing that gives is that, you know, that's how you kind of reconcile this trinity is you just kind of gain a degree of fiscal irresponsibility. You know, and, and that ties into the second question that I have. It's because you have a public perception that you pay too much taxes already, but that is artificially mm -hmm. created by annual deficits. So the government is delivering around a dollar of value for every 75 cents that you pay because the government is borrowing around $1 trillion a year for a budget of $4 trillion. So you have that inflated perception of what the government can achieve and how much money the government has to do things. And that, in my mind, goes to the welfare state as well, because, or mainly to the welfare state, because you have that inflated sense of what the government can achieve, and you feel that you already pay enough of taxes, so you're not willing to do anything else, and you're not willing to move. And you point to the distortion and how that distortion on the perception affects the support for war. Uh, and I think there is a fascinating book to be written about how that distortion affects the welfare state as well and affects the perception of activities on welfare state. And I just wanted to get your opinion on it. Do, do you think that that is a, a fair reading of your argument? Mm, right. So one thing that I – one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of – look cross-nationally at this, because I was I was interested whether this was just an American thing. Um, and I think the U.S. takes it to a, a, a much, uh, takes it to the next level because it can, because it is this large, like, huge economy. But I see a very similar trend in other advanced industrialized democracies, is that sort of this when I was, uh, I talked about the case of, of Denmark, for example, and we think we sort of hold this up, them up as kind of this, like, the Scandinavian model of uh, where they value kind of the social welfare state. Well, they're in, Denmark's an interesting case because they also have a pretty, you know, they've, uh, another paper that looked at uh, Denmark's role in the Afghanistan war. And as a percentage of the population, and as uh, they were contributing more troops than I think any other country. So they, they have a pretty robust uh, defense uh, and 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 contribution to uh, NATO, but uh, but what was interesting when you talk to their defense analysts is that they're doing the same thing we are. That they they don't want to make trade offs. No one wants to make trade offs, but the public certainly doesn't want to give up social programs in the in the name of defense. And so they just kind of massage the you know kind of like our overseas contingency operations. It's like, well, we're just going to like that's that's the spending. We're we're not going to ask to make questions about that. As sort of like a bit of obfuscation to avoid the really tough political questions and decisions that these countries want to make. So I think, again, I think the U.S. sort of illustrates the problem, but I think it's endemic to a lot of other democracies. It, it almost seems like we've rehearsed this, but that was my next. My next question was about the overseas contingency operations account and how that increases the perception of, of fight, being able to fight wars on the cheap because you remove a lot of the the resources that should be within the defense budget to a separate account, and that doesn't that doesn't show up all the time in the top line and then requires a lot of people to just raise their hand all the time and say, oh, no, what it really has as well, it has this whole separate account that you need to consider as well. You can't just ignore it. And, and I think that that contributes to the public misunderstanding and misperception of, of what it takes to to, to fight, it, fight those wars and, and to keep the military that we have and to have – to task the military the way we have tasked so far. And is there any reason why you did not touch on supplemental appropriations and Inoko in your book? Because that that is a recent uh, – that's a recent change. Historically, you have those supplemental appropriations and they get incorporated into the base budget, but that has not been the case in, in the last 17 years or so. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that that goes back even to Vietnam. Uh, and so if you look at the, the Vietnam War, and again, kind of these like budgetary gymnastics to 
make this appear as though it's not war. I mean, if you know this whole sort of process of gradual escalation, let's have this not be seen as a real war. Even in the Korean War, you know, Truman avoiding, you're calling it a police action, and I think it's very convenient for leaders to. Uh, and I would I, again, I would especially say where the strategic objectives become a bit more um, less existential. That it's very convenient for leaders to be able to kind of shunt this to the side, put it in the you know overseas contingency operations, call it not war, have gradual es escalation. Well, we just have thirty thousand military advisors, you know, Vietnam. Like they're not really doing anything. And then before you know, it, I mean, in one of the uh, examples of this recently, that or this is maybe a year or two ago, when Lindsey Graham, you know, Armed Services says, "Oh, I had no idea we had whatever ten thousand troops in Africa." And so even for the, you know, that is, that, is his, that is his job, to be aware of that. And it becomes really easy to just kind of, well, it's all over there. We don't, and I think it's because he's not getting pushback until a couple of people died. And then it's kind of this, okay, oh, and that's sort of the argument. The, you know, this is the Kantian logic, which is that's when people pay attention. You know, once, once their brothers and uh, sisters are dying and sons and daughters are dying in war, they start to care. But until that time, there's sort of less, uh, again, the sort of less skin in the game that gives people fewer. And again, this sort of idea that this is very politically convenient for members of Congress who have limited time in their days. Do they want to spend it dealing with con angry constituents on this? Do they want to spend it finagling the budget? It's easier just to kind of take that off the agenda. And you mentioned that the, the main vector for accountability I mean, the thrust of your book is that you need to have financial skin in the game in order to generate any accountability for governmental action, in a way. Because that's one interesting thing that I thought throughout reading your book is that a lot of the arguments that you make apply not just to conducting war, but to any governmental activity. Like You need to pay attention to what the government is doing, not just with its military, but also with... Your healthcare, or how it's affecting financial regulations, uh, all those aspects are, are are also related to a, a matter of accountability and and how and if your government is doing what you believe it's right. And you mentioned in, in your previous answer now that the there is the blood in the treasure as the the levers of, of getting the public to pay attention. Is there any other one? Is there any one that is more effective than the other? Mm, so I think the one that gets the, yeah, it might, it might be sort of an apples and oranges thing, uh, to use a crude metaphor, I guess, but um, because I think these, these register in very different ways. You know, I did some social science experiments to try to gauge how the public weighs those, and they surprisingly do in, in, uh, relatively commensurate ways. So, you know, I cited this number that when you uh, give someone a hypothetical war and say it will be financed through war taxes or financed through borrowing, and the tax level, when the support conditional on it being financed through taxes goes down by 15 to 20 percent. Mm -hmm. And that's the same with uh, casualties. The problem, though, if for people who uh, are familiar with, you know, uh, social psychology, political psychology, is that it's hard to sort of give someone a piece of paper and say, this is how you're going to feel with this sort of hypothetical casualty or a hypothetical tax. Uh, my sense, though, is that sort of the visceral nature of a casualty still registers in much more, uh, in much more salient ways than would be the case for a war tax. And again, I think this, uh, this case of uh, these four individuals who died, uh, special forces in Niger, illustrates that which is that the U.S. was conducting operations in Niger long before these casualties. Some of it was drones, some of it was but it's all sort of like very little sense that there were palpable costs until these four members died. And suddenly there's a political awareness of this that then leads to congressional hearings and, and uh, greater scrutiny as to what actually is going on there. Now you could argue that that is short-lived, you know, our 24-hour less than that news cycle. Um, but at least it gets it on the radar in a way that it hadn't in, uh, otherwise. 
and my last question before I open up to the audience. On page 207, you mentioned that the tradition of debt finance has become so entrenched that war taxes seem peculiar, almost like a historical anachronism. And my softball there is, should, do you think we should start having war taxes? What is, or do you see as the ideal mechanism to finance a war? Uh, so what I think is uh, incredibly interesting about this, um, and just by way of sort of uh, seeing whether this travels to countries other than the U.S., is that I, I was trying to find a case. So what scenario would, was, would cause Americans to say, you know what, we're ready to open our wallets and, and give money for this war, this five-cent uh, gas tax? Or, you know, the case of World War II, the polls are just super interesting on this, that um, there was a congressional proposal for a certain level of war taxes. And Gallup asked people, what would, what would you be willing to pay? People said basically 150% of, so 1.5 times what con Congress was proposing. I thought, what would get us back to that scenario where the Americans were just ready for like the fiscal, any kind of sacrifice? Um, and so I, uh, I looked at the sort of the closest case I could find. So in 2015, three days after the, that major terrorist attack in, in France. And so uh, a colleague and I did uh, basically a snap poll in, in Paris to ask people whether they would be willing to kind of pay a security tax for uh, counterterrorism. And the uh, support for this was about 19%. Um, and so this is like, this is, you know, the president had said this is a, an act of war, we're in a state of emergency. So even in, you know, in France, which you would think France is kind of less hostile to taxes than the United States is, uh, that there might be some sort of mm, greater willingness to tolerate this, but it was exactly the same level as in the United States. So that when we queried this in 2011 and 12 of Americans to support an Afghanistan war tax, it was 19%. So people just think that this is anathema to how we do business. And so I think any of the, any, anything along those lines is likely to remain unpopular. Uh, but I do think, you know, there's some members of Congress, and this is not a partisan issue. This, is, this seems to be more an ideological issue where you get some um, kind of members of the, you know, the Mike Lee kind of Rand Paul side of the right and the um, Ron Wyden, Tom Udall side of the left that can kind of agree that there needs to be kind of more at, more at stake here, that there needs to be more buy-in from the public and more accountability from Congress. And I think that's probably the direction that this needs to go to be able to kind of restore some of those accountability linkages. Okay. Uh, any questions from the audience? Just wait for the mic and please make your question in the form of a question. Uh, start from the back. Thanks for coming here. Uh, I think you made a very strong, cogent argument for you know, incorporating a tax to make the Amer American public feel more connected to a conflict. In one of your slides, you, you kind of showed a, a comparison of duration of, of wars. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if during your comparative analysis, if it was more strongly correlated that the duration toward having a tax associated to that war, or it was the duration was more associated to how clear the strategic objectives were. And, and the policy objectives, and you kind of, you know, cited General McChrystal's, um, I, I guess, quote, and then j j just made a reference to World War II and, and people's willingness. It seems like World War II, there was a very clear threat and clear objectives, whereas Af Afghanistan, it's, it's still kind of like an airplane being built in flight. Mm -hmm. So I would say that these are, these factors are completely related, which is, the uh, reason why you're willing to get leaders kind of asking for sacrifice and the public willing to sacrifice in World War II is because of those clear national stakes. And so part of the argument is that the reason why you, or one reason you don't get that anymore is that, uh, is that you it is, you know, again, Steven Pinker would say that, well, it's the better angels of our nature. We just aren't a hostile pop, uh, people anymore. I don't know that I necessarily buy that. I do buy the deterrent 
aspects of nuclear weapons. I think that, that to me, that's a really persuasive argument, is that you have countries, they have major powers that have nuclear weapons. They do not want to go to war because it's just too damn costly. And so what do they do? They fight at the periphery. They fight these sort of, and you know, in the sense that um, it's not like the U.S. is going to use nuclear weapons in Afghanistan. And I mean, and, and part of this is the nuclear taboo. Part of this is like, I mean, so there's a lot wrapped up in this. Um, but then you in the, you end up in these wars with the uh, how many steps does it take to get a driver's license? You know, th those kinds of wars and. Um, and those are not persuasive to the American public. And so you end up in this more pernicious cycle where those kinds of measures that might be, might otherwise have been possible in previous wars become kind of impossible in these recent ones. Oh, no, the, the, the mic is there. Oh, sorry. Oh, and please uh, introduce I'll, yourself. I'll uh, my name is Dr. Rakab Malik. I'm a Fulbright Scholar currently at the Elliott School. Um, I think it's uh, a very good account of um, what's been happening, but um, I think we need to look at the future. And I want to ask you a question regarding um, the maintenance of uh, the global order, as we see it uh, in the West, for example, and the rivalry that is uh, increasing now uh, from the East vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Um, and there. Uh, unlikely acceptance of our democratic norms, for example. Um, so when it comes down to this, um, and the fact that we will probably be heading into uh, um, a scenario where we're in um, another Cold War, per se, maybe not to the extent that we were before, um, how are we going to persuade the public that this is an existential threat, that the rise of China is existentially threatening to their way of, their, the way of life here. I'm from England, so it's not, not very different. We have problems there as well, but, mm -hmm. but uh, for me, it's a, I'm writing a book on this, so for me to understand how to get money out of the public, which is what it really is, uh, how do we persuade them that we're, we're going into a long-term potential uh, conflict there as well, and taxation may be one of them, I think. Uh, so this is a, a really important question. It's something I thought a lot about. Uh, um, when I was working on the, on the book, is this like a historical teleology where like once we're moving in this inexorable direction and we can't kind of go back? to a way in which things were done before. Um, and, and the question of China came up in my mind. Of, so what if the US were engaged in a hot war with China where we're back to 38% of our GDP spending on defense? And uh, I mean, I guess time will tell, but I, I think that that scenario is, uh, it's, it seems, it strikes me as unimaginable. Um, and, 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 and in part, I mean, I think this comes back to a, uh, the question of, of nuclear weapons. Um, and so the US and Soviet Union were hostile for many years. Um, and, uh, and and I think that chart shows it really well is sort of this decline. It, you know, you have, you have now this tension between the welfare and the warfare state. Uh, but I would subscribe to the idea that the commitment to the welfare state among the population is stronger than it is to the warfare state. And that what that means is that uh, that kind of keeps a basically a low-level appetite for any kind of conflict that will require any kind of sacrifice and any kind of distortion of the way of life that they're used to. Some of that is probably good because it may mean that we don't engage in in uh, you know the the Doctor Strangelove kind of wars where you go, well five million ten million I didn't say your hair wouldn't get mussed like those kinds of wars. I think are relatively unlikely because both in, in part because of the um, nuclear weapons, but also kind of this historical move away from major war. Maybe this is nodding towards Steven Pinker. I don't know, but um, but I also think it's interesting the way these different sides are preparing for that kind of conflict. You know, you talk to people in the uh, uh, military, and they seem to 
be quite averse to, and this makes a lot of sense, some, uh, uh, an all-out ground war with China, because that doesn't seem as amenable. Um, you know, it's again, like Reagan said, is that you do not want to, neither side will win that kind of war. Uh, and so there's no reason to, to fight that in the first place. I know, I know it's not a discussion. Uh, I'm not teaching uh, for the next year or so. <laughs> I get an opportunity to say something sometimes. Um, we like talking, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we do. um, but, for, but for my understanding is that um, the less uh, or the more uh, resistant you are to under, uh, accepting a potential war, um, that, that you want to avoid it, the more likely it might occur because China is coming up. Uh, and we can see that everywhere. Uh, there was a discussion this morning in the Brookings, and uh, the, uh, the admiral in charge of the uh, naval uh, operations, for example, was talking about the necessity to maintain capacity and capabilities at all levels and surpass any other competitor um, is necessary. And that cost is increasing exponentially as the days go by because technology is get, getting more expensive. And they are, they're ratcheting up, uh, ratcheting up their uh, technology base massively as well. So you get to a point where you have no choice because you want to maintain your system as it is now. Or are you willing to compromise and mesh in some type of future global system? This is what we're really talking about. Mm -hmm. A global system where um, their say comes into it, but they're not going to accept our values either. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm trying to get to, I think, as far as money is concerned. Right. I mean, and I think the best outcome is you, because you're right. I, I think what you're also getting at is the only way for deterrence to work is for it to be mutually painful for both sides to think about engaging in conflict. And the only way for it to hurt, just like Thomas Schilling, um, is for to, to spend some resources on that, on, on defense and retaliation. And so I think the U.S. Is, has, has not shown that it's backing away from that necessarily. Uh, and but even still, again, you look at sort of as a percentage of GDP, that's relatively low. That the U.S. is was it like 3.8 percent on defense, and and again, you do have some trade-offs. I mean, eventually, you do have the the guns that are trade-off, and it seems as though the the social programs are, you know, to a large extent, winning that one. And and so it raises, I think, these in some ways this, these fundamental questions that. All political elites seem to have incentives to kick down the, the, the road, right? It's a partial answer. Hi, Rachel Vismos with the Heritage Foundation. Um, so your dates for when uh, war taxing stopped coincide pretty well with the establishment of the all-volunteer force and a peacetime professional military. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that has anything to do with it and the fact that it's not really war spending anymore so much as defense spending. And do you think in order to have a tax, it would have to be a clear delineation of, um, of defense spending or spending for the military and spending on war specifically? Mm -hmm. So OCO versus, yeah, base budget. Right, right, right. So that's a really good question. I think these things are hard to disentangle. And, and I would say that some of this, is some of what you're talking about, kind of the move to the all-volunteer military Air Force, ABF, and the move away from the war taxes are sort of two sides of the same coin. And it's uh, in part because of the wars that we, the, the U.S. started fighting became this kind of less existential, less sort of the stakes seemed less high, um, uh, in probably more than anything else. But that that state-society relationship that I talked about where, you know, the U.S. kind of values other things now increasingly. And the, where that meets in the middle is that these political leaders want to kind of keep debates, political debates about war kind of uh, off the table. Because, you know, it's, it's sort of the, um, there was a political scientist, David Mayhew, who wrote about Congress, the electoral connection, and he talks about the opportunity cost of, you know, members' time. And I think this makes a lot of sense. And if, if constituents have started to value other things, um, they want to be devoting less time to these debates as well. And I think that that is the, conse the consequence of this is both the, all, the shift for the all, all the volunteer military and the, the move away from war taxes, where they just kind of want to keep this uh, off the table and keep political debates low. 
to disentangle this again though becomes really hard and i think you have to do this through you know the vietnam case really makes it just the problem is that all of these things kind of there's a confluence they all kind of happen in 1968 you know and and uh the u.s kind of loses it's the tet offensive it's the uh war tax it's uh, now you've you're sort of shifting but what you see kind of in terms of kind of the evidence is that the the war tax in this case does become this lightning rod it does become something very concrete and tangible for individuals to kind of engage as the cost to them in a way that helps mobilize, you know, that you get uh, these hundreds of thousands of people marching um, in protest to the war. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of things have changed. And I have a, a piece with a, a, uh, in foreign affairs with um, uh, someone who works on the medical impact of battlefield kind of medicine. And that's a really interesting one because it used to be that for every um, individual killed in action, you had four casualties, four wounded. Now you have 10. And so again, a lot of these changes are for the good, that you're having fewer battlefield casualties, let's say for the same kind of uh, shrapnel wound. Uh, but that's another way in which people, if you don't have a, a fatality, it's not resonating in the same way as a member who's coming back wounded, even if the cost to that person and his family and society are quite high. And so I think all of these are just sort of different manifestations of the ways in which conflict has receded from the foreground of people's kind of consciousness to the background um, in a way that kind of erodes the accountability linkages and makes that kind of less salient for individuals, less salient for members of Congress, and you, know, you end up with these kind of pretty open-ended I wonder what your feelings are on U.S. savings bonds. Uh, you know, the Second World War was financed to a great extent by the savings bonds. Uh, today, the IRA and the Keogh accounts have sort of supplanted the savings bonds basically due to tax reasons. Uh, the, you put away the money there. There's no tax on it uh, for many, many years, whereas a savings bond, you have plenty of tax on it. Maybe there's a need to try to uh, provide, you know, a 50% provision for no tax on your interest income to try to help sell them. The rates are very low, which doesn't help. Years ago, the rates were higher, but that's how it is. But I wondered... Uh, you know, President Lincoln sent the bands out all over the North to try to finance uh, the war by war bonds and whatnot. But then we have the savings bond, but maybe there's a way to reinvigorate it. Uh, so that seems like a great suggestion. You know, I always feel like I am, I am so pessimistic on the sort of prognosis for this, but that strikes me as a really fruitful way that is also potentially politically palatable to actually kind of create restorative I think that's an interesting idea. So we'll take one last question. Please go. Thanks, Dr. Krebs, for coming. Uh, we've kind of hinted around this. There's probably some learned quote that I don't know that talks about security or foreign affairs is too important to be left to a democracy. I'm sure we could find something from Athens or something like that. But my, And you've kind of hinted about this, but given the antipathy people have towards taxing for their security, you've described this, is an argument to be made, and maybe you made it in your book, that given that, um, we're going to be, nations would be way too reluctant to engage in conflict because they see this price tag coming right around the corner. And, and I think about uh, Britain in like 1935 who chose to uh, focus internally versus the confronting the German threat as they were violating the treaty and stuff like that. And so is there a danger? I mean, I'm at Heritage, we love accountability. That's one, that should be in our elevator, but it's not. Is there a danger that too much accountability would lead to nations ignoring a uh, looming threat and that they would say, you know what, I know that's a problem, but we can't afford uh, to handle something like that? So I think that was a much more eloquent answer than the one I was giving to this gentleman <laughs> right here. That was exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's exactly the, the point, is that I think we, are, we do risk kind of this appeasement kind of grand strategy because we just don't want to pay for it. And so the politically attractive compromise from the right and the left is just to kind of like throttle back 
and disengage uh, because we don't want to bear we don't want to bear the Americans don't want to bear the cost and and the politicians don't want to have to make the hard choices or have to explain the hard choices that they are making. Uh, with that, thank you so much for coming over. I really appreciate your talk, Dr. Kurtz. Uh We have books for sale outside, and it's just it's going to be by the place that just by the entrance. Uh, and now there are going, there's some sandwiches over there as well for lunch. And <laughs> Professor Kraft will be available here to sign any books if, you, if you're so inclined. Thank you so much, and thank you.